trust you have a, had a good day today. And if not, I'm still grateful that you're here. You're in the right place tonight. And we are starting a brand new series entitled Gospel Clarity. Gospel Clarity. And uh, we're going to get into that uh, pretty deeply uh, in the four weeks following this. Or it's, Really, we're going to have some interruptions because of VBS and other things. But in the next four sermons, I should say, we're going to really dive in deep to this. Tonight's sermon, it really does matter because it lays a foundation to where we're going. A lot of times when we open up a series, um, it, you're tempted to look at the first sermon. We're tempted to preach the first sermon as though it's less important than the others because it, it, it feels introductory of sorts. Um, but but this, this message tonight is, is going to be very teachy on purpose. Um, and it's going to be introductory, but it is foundational to understanding where we're going with this. It's, it's really kind of putting it all together in one is what we're doing up front. And then for the next four sermons, we're breaking it down. So you're going to learn in this sermon, there's four critical truths that we have to understand to really grasp the gospel, to know it, to share it and to live it. So I'm going to put those all together in one tonight and show you how Paul does that in the first four chapters of Romans. But then what we're going to do, Pastor David and myself over the course of the next four sermons is take each one of those four critical truths and preach their own individual sermons and dive into the deep end of those a little bit. And so... Um, I, I hope that, that you'll jump right in with me. You have to think with me tonight. Um, I know there are children in here and I'm glad they're in here for this. I, I don't know if they'll grasp all of this. In fact, I know they won't be able to grasp all of this, but anytime we talk about the gospel and children who are potentially unsaved are in here, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. So kids, if you're in here and not in kids club tonight, I'm glad you're in here. I want you to listen real close tonight. Uh, take good notes and, and uh, listen well because I think God will speak to your heart as well as the adults. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you were asked that, how would you answer? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? We, we know the word gospel itself means good news. We know that. But what exactly is the news? And what is so good about it? Now, you, you would think that would be an easy question to answer, especially for Christians. In fact, you'd think that preaching a series like this would be completely unnecessary for Christians. It's like asking carpenters to sit around and ponder the question, what is a hammer? Think about it. The gospel of Jesus Christ stands at the very center of Christianity. And we Christians claim to be about the gospel above all else. It's what we intend to found our lives upon and build our churches around. It's what we speak to others about. It's what we pray that others will believe. The gospel is everything to us. If that's true, how would you explain it? How would you describe it? If it really is the centerpiece of everything, then why is there so many definitions? Why does it seem like it's a different version at every church you go to? Why, does every, why is it like mumble jumble and Christianese? Or it's just one line statements. If you were asked what is the gospel, what, what is this news that you Christians go on and on about 
And what's so good about it? What would you say? My sense is that far too many Christians would answer with something short of what the Bible holds out as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe they'd answer sincerely. Well, the gospel is that God will forgive sins if you believe in him. That's the gospel. Or the good news is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or the gospel is that Jesus is a really good example who can teach me to live a better life. That's the gospel. Or the gospel is that you're a child of God and God wants his children to be abundantly successful in every way. That's the good news. Some would know that it's important to say something about Jesus' death on the cross. They would know that it's important to say something about his resurrection from the grave. But how is that really good news? And how does it fit into my life positively? The fact is, getting Christians to agree on an answer to this question, what is the gospel, is not as simple as it should be. So where do we find the answer? What information is out there that is both authoritative and accurate? Of course, for Christians, we would all agree that we go to the Bible to find the answer. That's Roman numeral number one, if you have a handout tonight. What is our authority? What is our authority? When we're faced with the question, what is the gospel? We have to make some sort of decision about what source of information we're going to use in order to answer that question. And of course, we, we're going to go to God's word because we believe that what God said is true. Well, I thought we believe that. Normally, when we believe what the preacher says, we affirm that by nodding our head or saying amen. So I'll try that one more time. We believe what what God has spoken to us through his word is true. Yeah, I mean, if a lost person's in here, I want them to know I'm not the only one that believes God's word is true tonight. Therefore, if we believe that it's true, we don't have to be skeptical or uncertain about the gospel. Here's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. If we have an authority in the Bible about the gospel then the gospel is not this foggy, unclear idea that everybody can just decide what they think it is. It's not up to us to put our own spin on it. We have a final authority in Scripture. So then the next question is, where do we go in Scripture to find what the gospel truly is? Roman numeral two, where in the Bible do we go? Where in the Bible do we go. Romans is a great place to start. You know, I'm praying about preaching through the book of Romans next. Can y'all pray that God tells me no? Because it's daunting. I feel a little bit of pull to preach through this book sooner than later. I don't know if it'll be after James. it start this fall probably, but I don't know what we'll see, but I'm going to give you a little summary of the first four chapters tonight. But Romans is a letter. It's just, it's a way for the apostle Paul to introduce himself and his message to a group of Christians he had never met. I think you need to put the next, the next slide up there, Brother Dustin. Roman number number two. Uh, let's skip that one. Go, go to the next one. I'm sorry. I, I probably skipped that in, in my notes or I put it in the wrong order. So Apostle Paul's trying to introduce himself and his message to a group of Christians he, he had never met. That, that's, that's why if you know Romans, you know it's a systematic step-by-step feel. So Paul wanted these Christians to know about him and, and his ministry But he also wanted to articulate the gospel so it would be solidified in their minds. That's why why he he talks about the gospel so early on 
in chapter 1, verse 16, which is where I'm supposed to have this verse, and I put it in the wrong order, Brother Dustin. But you'll see it in your Bible. Romans 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Following this verse, from this point on, and especially in the first four chapters, Paul explains this good news, this gospel that he's not ashamed of, in wonderful detail. So as we look at these chapters, we're going to see how Paul structures his presentation of the gospel around four critical truths. These same four truths show up again and again in the apostles' preaching of the gospel. So I want to, I want to trace his progression of thought in four stages. You ready? Letter A, Paul tells his readers, number one, they are accountable to God, their creator. Okay, if we're going to start where Paul starts with the gospel, okay, This is where he starts. Believe it or not, he doesn't start with God loves you. Or Jesus loves you. That is is a crucial part of the gospel. That's not where he starts. He starts with the fact that God is your creator and you must answer to him. Verse 18 of chapter 1. You can look in your Bible or on the screen. If I've got him in the right order, I can't predict I did. It's been a long day. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now you may be thinking, I thought the gospel was good news. What about the wrath of God is good? It's a good question. Fair question. Think about it like this. Someone gets cancer. Let's say they have a brain tumor and the brain tumor is deadly unless it's dealt with aggressively. So the doctor prescribes a course of treatment, surgery, and then intense radiation treatments to follow. I want you to imagine that you're going through all of that and you go through all of it. And then you ring the bell after your last treatment. And and months later, the doctor finally does this last scan to see if it's all gone. And sure enough, there's no more sign of cancer. That's good news. You're, You're in remission. Why would that news be so good to you? Here's why. Because you understand what you had. You understand that in your brain was a tumor severe enough to kill you if it wasn't dealt with appropriately. The good news of remission was so good because you understood your initial diagnosis. And the same is true with the good news of the gospel. It's such good news only after you understand the bad news. If someone isn't brought to the reality of God and his judgment and wrath over their sin, they can't truly understand and appreciate. And I would submit to you, receive the good news of the gospel. So this is where Paul begins. God does have the right to judge us. If that's not a part of your gospel message, you're missing something. Here's why God has that right. Because humanity is not autonomous. We did not create ourselves. We're neither self-reliant or self-accountable. God who created the world and everything in it has revealed this to us. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Are you with me? God has created us, we are accountable to Him, and He has revealed this inside of us. This is why I believe that people intuitively know that they are not their own ultimate authority. Because God has revealed this in each of our hearts. So this is where the gospel starts. You can't miss this. 
It starts with understanding that God created us and he has the right to exercise his authority in our lives. He has the right to demand we worship him alone. You've got to understand that. Which leads us to Paul's second progression of thought. The second critical truth. Paul says their problem, speaking to the Romans, their problem is that they have rebelled against God. They, along with everyone else, did not honor God as they should have. How do I know? Well, look at verses 20 through 23 of chapter 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and forfeited beasts and creeping things. The verse says that man glorified him not as God. Man includes you too. Naturally, we begin the path away from God, naturally. And as we go in that direction, our heart becomes darker and darker. This brings us to the essence, the root of our sin in one word, idolatry. Did you see verse 23? Change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and to birds and beasts and creeping things. This is revolting. This is Paul's description of idolatry. Man is created by God. Man is accountable to God and designed to give God the highest honor, the highest value, and to find joy and fulfillment and delighting in Him. But instead, man takes the Creator off the pedestal, puts the creation on the pedestal, and says, this is what I will honor. This is where I will find joy. This is what I will delight in. This is part of the gospel message. This is the root and essence of sin, to not honor God. Nobody is born with the inclination to be a good and godly person. And they have to understand that. For the next three chapters of Romans, Paul delves into the horrific results of the roots of this sin of idolatry. And no one, he says, is left with a valid excuse. Everyone has broken God's law. Everyone is under God's righteous judgment. And by the time we get to chapter 3, hang with me tonight, Paul has indicted every single person in the world with rebellion against God. Which brings us to the third progression of thought. Paul tells them God's solution to humanity's sin is the death of Jesus Christ. Now we start to hear a little bit of good news. Romans 3 verse 21. But now... And that's in spite of our sin, by the way, in spite of our idolatry. Now, the righteousness of God without, or you could say apart from the law, is manifested. You got to get this verse if you're a Christian. Paul is saying that there is a way for human beings to be declared righteous before God. There's a way for people to be innocent and not guilty, to be justified instead of condemned. But notice what he says, it is apart from the law. It has nothing to do with acting better or having better behavior. This being made right, this solution to our problem has nothing to do with an improved self. 
If we are ever going to be made righteous, it is not because we made ourselves righteous. This righteousness that Paul is speaking of is apart from the law. It's apart from the wrong, right and wrong things we do. How does that happen? How does it happen apart from the law? Well, we know the answer to that through Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified, I love this next word, freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That ought to just ring a bell with you. If you're saved tonight, you did not save yourself because you never could. Through the redemption that Jesus has made for us in his perfect life and death, we can be made righteous. How is that good news for me? How is that good news for you? How do we get included in that salvation? That's Paul's fourth and final progression of thought. Letter D. Paul says they can be included in this salvation. How? Well, that's what he writes about from the end of chapter 3 on through chapter 4. Look at Romans chapter 3 verse 22. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Then look at Romans 4 verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So you see that this righteousness that Paul speaks of is applied by faith to those that believe. It becomes good news for you and for me when we personally believe in Jesus Christ by faith and trust in him and no other to save us. Amen. So what's the point? That's Roman number three. What, what is the point? I want to put all this together. Having summarized Paul's argument in Romans one through four, we can see the heart of his proclamation of the gospel are the answers to four critical questions in your handout and on the screen. Question one, who made us and who do we answer to? How would you answer that question out loud? God. Question number two, what is our problem? Sin. Question number three, what is God's solution? How has he acted to save us from it? Jesus. How do I get included, number four, in God's solution? Believe and repent. The gospel message is the answer to these four questions. And we can summarize these four points like this, and you're going to memorize this and get sick of it. I hope you don't get sick of it, but you're you're going to memorize it probably before the end of this service, before the end of this series. God, man, Christ, response. If you want a grid, if, if, if if you want a summary of the four critical truths that make up the gospel in the most concise way possible, it's this right here. God, man, Christ response. Now we know Paul goes on in the book of Romans to unfold a universe of promises that God has made to those who are saved in Christ. But it's important for us to realize right from the get go that all of those things in the, in the latter part of the book of Romans depend on and flow from this one fountainhead right here. You get that? Paul, in some way or another, either implicitly or explicitly, as you study his preaching of the gospel, and even the other apostles, they somehow, some way, talk about these four aspects in their presentation of the gospel. Now, their context change 
Paul talks to various audiences through his ministry. His angles change. His structure changes. His emphasis changes. But it seems that when the early Christians were proclaiming the message of Jesus, they always touched on these four critical truths. God has created us. We're accountable to him. Man has sinned against God and will be judged for his sin. But God has acted in Christ to save those who respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. God, man, Christ, response. Say that out loud. God, man, Christ, response. Now, we need to note something. We're going to move into some application. We need to note that God, man, Christ, response, the structure is not necessarily a checklist that the apostles checked off when they were preaching the gospel. Okay, depending on the context or how long they had to preach or to whom they were speaking, they presented these four truths in a variety of ways. Let me show you real quick. This is so important because what I'm getting across is not necessarily a brand new soul winning plan for you. That's not the point of this sermon. It's much deeper than four words or some rigid system. It's, it's, it's an it's a understanding at large of the gospel. And you can articulate this in your own way, in your own emphasis, depending on the context or the situation, if you have a, a good understanding of it. For instance, when Paul is preaching to Jews, which he did often, he would spend less time talking about God. He wouldn't preach God explicitly, rather implicitly. He wouldn't spend a lot of time on that establishing that thought as, as that God is the one true creator who you're accountable to. He would spend a lot more time on the next three elements of truth, especially the response element. Why is that? Well, listen, the Jews were already aware of the fact that that it is God to whom they were accountable and for whom they needed the gift of forgiveness. So to the Jew, Paul wanted to emphasize that their response did not include their traditions. That's what they, they were hung up on. Their response didn't include their behavior, but rather a repentance of sin and a belief in Christ alone. But he adjusted his emphasis, watch this, when he goes to Mars Hill in Athens, Acts 17. And he's not preaching to Jews. He's preaching to Greek philosophers. And he has to spend the majority of his time studying that message. And he's emphasizing core truth number one about God. Why? Because these pagans denied the creator God. They were stooped in idolatry. Paul wasn't going to go and say, stop your traditions if they didn't even believe in God in the first place. The Jew believed in God. He didn't have to emphasize that as much. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm not introducing to you a modern version of the Romans road. That's not the point of this series. It's not a rigid system. It's it's more of an understanding of these four elements. And then you take these four elements and, and you adjust them to whoever you're dealing with. Are you adjust how you apply them to your own life in your own circumstances? The next four sermons will be used to break down each of those things. So the first sermon is going to be on God, second man, third Christ, fourth response. And the goal of this is is for all of us to come to a clear understanding and and, and then apply what we've come to understand about the gospel in each of these categories in three ways. Three ways. Three headings. Know, share, and live. So the structure of the messages throughout the series are going to be much like tonight. We're going to spend the first part of the sermon, 80% of the sermon, explaining to you from Scripture how this is true. But then we're going to go apply it under these three headings and basically answer this question. Why does this part of the gospel matter to my life? 
Well, it matters in that you need to know it, in that you need to share it, and in that you need to live it. So let's talk about that. And I want to share with you some of my heart and how God's dealt with me um, through this series and in my understanding of the gospel and, and what my heart is for our church. So it's going to be pastoral for the next few minutes and then we'll go home tonight. Let's talk about knowing, knowing. It would be foolish for me to take for granted that everyone in here tonight is believing the gospel and repenting of their sin for salvation. I would be irresponsible of me. Every time I preach from this pulpit, I'm preaching as though there are lost people in the room. And tonight is no different. So I don't rush through on a Wednesday night the knowing heading of the gospel because I'm going to take for granted everybody knows the gospel. I I can't do that. If you're not a Christian yet, it's important for you to have a clear idea of what the good news is. Self-improvement is not the gospel. Reciting a magic formula is not the gospel. Prosperity is not the gospel. Doing Christian things, that's not the gospel. There's one saving message and it begins with God. He created you. You answer to Him. And you've got a problem. If you've got to answer to Him, you're not exactly clean. You've got a sin problem, like I have a sin problem. And God is holy. And He will judge you according to that holiness. And you are not holy, my friend. I am not holy. We need someone to make us right with the Father. Or we're doomed for eternal judgment in a real place called hell. That's where Jesus comes in. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Kids, are you listening? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God commendeth His love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can be justified freely, but you can't do it yourself. You're accountable to God. That's actually bad news because you're not ready to stand before him. You're too unholy. You're messed up because of sin. You were born that way. But Jesus offers you a better way. So you respond this way. You want to become a Christian tonight? You respond by believing in Jesus alone. Placing your faith in Jesus alone. Here's what I know. That doesn't happen because you hear one sermon. You may need to sit down with somebody and say, man, I want to press into that a little bit. Well, we've got this program called Fellowship 101. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. Fellowship 101, six weeks, you get to sit one-on-one with somebody. And they will walk you through the Gospel of Mark and show you slowly what this good news really means. But I have a feeling if you're hearing this message tonight and you're not saved, that the Holy Spirit is doing something in your mind and heart right now. And so you, you need to respond to that. If you're not trusting in Christ alone to make you right with the Father, then you need to do something about that tonight. Tonight. That's the gospel. 
and you need to know it. But if you're a Christian, you need to share it. And knowing these core truths is really helpful. This is where I'm going to get pastoral to our church family for a moment. When I say sharing this good news, that doesn't mean that every evangelistic conversation will involve walking through this grid. Sometimes, and maybe most of the time, it will. But you've got you to know it well enough to adjust depending on who you're dealing with. But, but more importantly than just giving you a new evangelism strategy... It helps you make sure, watch this, that you're sharing the same good news that Jesus wanted his original followers to share. Nothing more and nothing less. You're not taking any shortcuts. And as you understand the gospel more and more, as you understand everything you can about these four core truths, God, man, Christ response, you'll be surprised, church, by how they make their way into your conversations and interactions with lost people. You'll find that the gospel truly is the answer for all of their problems and yours. Parents, can I talk to you for a moment? I'm sure that you are passionate about sharing the gospel with your children. I hope you are. Understanding these elements of the gospel is huge. See, many parents want their children to repent and believe. But repent from what? Believe in what? For what? If your children can't answer these questions, hear me parents, they're still a mission field. And that's okay. As a parent, you should never feel rushed to get your kids to say a prayer. I get what we're saying when we say, just ask Jesus in your heart. But as kindly as I can tell you, children's ministry workers, Sunday school teachers, VBS workers, parents, the gospel is deeper than ask Jesus into your heart. It's more than that. It's it's more than that invitation song we sing. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. It's a great song. You should sing it. And it might plant some seeds of the gospel. But if, if our children only, if all they understand is, I just got to ask Jesus, come to my heart. Do they really understand that they're accountable to God? Do they really understand that they're under the judgment and wrath of God if, if, if Jesus doesn't make them right with the Father? Do they get that? We got to be careful. This leads me to address our children's ministry as well. Especially with Vacation Bible School coming up. Now I want to be clear. I am all for sharing the gospel with children as much as possible through events like Vacation Bible School, Sunday School classes, weekly children's ministry. And I want to say I am so thankful for all of those in our church that are passionate about that. I'm serious. But as your pastor, I want us to be so careful. Because in our passion to see children saved, we can sometimes rush the process. So so to help us avoid doing this, I'm going to ask our altar workers for Vacation Bible School to use the invitation, hear me closely, not to bring a young child to a decision, but to assess the child's understanding of the gospel. There's a difference. The invitation time at Vacation Bible School will not be used to get kids to say a sinner's prayer. It will be used for a saved, mature Christian to assess 
a child's understanding of the gospel. To help with that, we're going to give each altar worker an assessment card that will give you prompts to use in your conversation. Once you ask those questions, we're going to ask you to fill out, and Pastor Tanner will get with you on this, fill out the assessment card, get the child's contact information, and then turn that back into Pastor Tanner. At that point, he will personally follow up with the child, and if appropriate and okay with the parents, he will enlist the child into a kid-friendly version of Fellowship 101, which he's currently going through with two children in our children's ministry right now, going through that with two children right now, that, that he can take them slowly through the gospel before they make that decision. So the way I view Vacation Bible School is this way. It is a week of planting gospel seeds. Not a week of a bunch of kids praying a prayer. I hope that sits well with you. Brother Andrew will be preaching Christ. He'll be applying the Bible to children's lives, putting on skits, singing songs. My desire is that gospel seeds will be planted through it all. Then after vacation Bible school, we carefully and patiently water those seeds until God brings the harvest. So I've had so many times. Altar worker takes a kid, leads them to Christ. Four weeks later, their parents find out. Well, we did that like a year ago. Okay, when did they get saved? Are you with me? And so I want to be, be more careful. And this is coming from a kid that doubted his salvation to the point of depression for 10 years. So if I'm extra sensitive about it, it's because I'm extra sensitive about it. And I want to be careful that our kids aren't putting their trust in, in just a prayer that they pray. But they are putting their trust for a lifetime in the gospel. Because here's what I found out. I prayed a prayer, but, but I quickly stopped trusting in that prayer because I forgot what I said. And I forgot the date. And I didn't remember if I really meant it or not. And so all my faith years later was put in what I did. And it wasn't put in the gospel. The moment we stop believing in the gospel to save us, we start doubting that we're saved. Because no matter how wonderful your prayer was, it wasn't good enough to save you. No way you said it all perfect. No way you said it like this. And you don't have to say it like this. But if you trust in what you say, or if you meant it, or if you got the date written at the front leaf of your Bible, you're in trouble. Because you need something deeper than just your memory. You need the truth of the gospel. Now, let me go a little further. This idea of patient and careful gospel sharing is it's just something God's been working in my heart the last couple of years as a whole for our, our church. This is why we have revised our assimilation program. It's not just six weeks, dunk them in the water and have a good merry life. It's now working on Fellowship 101, 201, and 301. 101 is completely about the gospel. That's it. It's affirming somebody's belief in the gospel and repentance of their sins. We should not baptize anybody in our church until we can affirm that with confidence. That's why we're careful. Six weeks of that. I don't want to baptize someone just because they say, yeah, I got saved. When? And then they give a vague articulation of that. I'm not comfortable with that. I want to make sure this person knows Jesus. I don't want to take anything for granted. 
201 then begins to explain baptism. It explains communion. Um, it explains our core beliefs. By the way, before someone becomes a member, I want them to agree to that too. Right? Not everybody's fit for Fellowship Baptist Church because they may interpret Scripture differently than we do. So I'm not going to cast, cast them in the lake of fire or anything. They're, they can very well still be saved. But if they can't agree to the core beliefs, then it's probably not good for them to become a part of this body. Are you with me? I'm explaining to my heart of assimilation because if this means that we grow slower, I'm fine with that. If, the, if it means that there, there's two months in between baptism services, I'm fine with that. If this, is, if this means that at the end of every year, there's, there's not as many that actually walk the aisle and get saved at an altar, I'm okay with that. That's nowhere found in Scripture. Nowhere found in Scripture. An invitation, like we do, it's nowhere found in Scripture. We're not going to stop doing it. But, but when someone comes forward, that's great, that's awesome. But I'm not going to get disappointed any longer when nobody does. Why? Because a gospel seed was planted. I get to have a conversation with them in the foyer. I get to call them on Monday. And we get to schedule an appointment with them and sit down and then open up the Gospel of Mark and for six weeks explain it to them. I'm much more comfortable explaining something slowly and letting the Holy Spirit do the drawing over the course of six weeks than me preaching one persuasive sermon and pulling them down by an invisible string. Are you with me? Just because somebody feels something in their heart doesn't mean they're ready to be saved. You know what that means? A gospel seed is to be planted and the Holy Spirit's working. But does that mean they really understand that they're accountable to God? Does it really mean they understand the depravity of their sin-sick soul? Does it really mean that they understand their necessity for Christ alone and they really understand what it means to repent of their sin, to be repulsed by it, to change their mind about their sin, to turn their back on their sin, to, to, to start fighting their sin? Do they really understand that because of one 40-minute sermon? Probably not. I think there's balance. I, I, I don't think that you have to have a doctorate degree in the gospel to get saved. That would be silly. That would deny the simplicity of it. That would deny the power of faith in what we don't fully understand. That would, that would disallow for children to get saved. That would disallow for people who were raised in a totally uh, uh, anti-grace and faith religious background. That, they, you know, they, they probably won't understand that for a while. So you don't have to understand everything about it. But you do have to understand an element of these four core critical truths to place your faith in, in what the gospel can do for eternity. And I, I just want us as a church to slow down a tiny bit, to, to be as passionate as we've ever been to help people find and follow Jesus as passionate as we've ever been, but more careful than we've ever been. Are you with me? Doesn't mean you're going to hear me preach. I preach passionately on the gospel tonight. We're going to have an invitation every time I preach a gospel message. And here's why. Because God still might use an invitation as a means for someone's salvation. Kristen Morse was sitting somewhere here or there. I think it was when I preached heart to heart, Hannah. Okay, on a Tuesday night out of all services. And she came to heart to heart. And I gave an invitation 
And she, she came forward and Hannah took her to the side. Hannah says, well, let's go through Fellowship 101. And she's like, no, I'm, like, I'm ready to get saved now. Okay, so here's what happens. God, God talks about salvation in a process. Two different portions of scripture. He says this, that, 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 that some plant, some water, and some get the increase. Here's the implication. It's a process. Right? So someone can come in on a Sunday morning and there's already been a gospel seed planted. As was the case with Christian. It's already been watered in various ways. People have prayed. Or they've heard a song on the radio that confirms it. Or they saw somebody at work live it. Or they heard a message on the, online. Or read a book. So, so it was watered. And then they come into fellowship on a Sunday. And I happen to be preaching on God, man, Christ response. And it's harvest time for them. It's time for the plant to grow. You get what I'm saying? So why would I eliminate an invitation or, or calling someone to a public response? Because there's a possibility even tonight that one of you need to get saved. And you're ready. You've had the gospel planted in your heart. You understand these things because it's been watered. And now you're ready to respond by faith and repent of your sin. So I'm not taking that away. I just want to be very, very careful. That in our effort to help people find and follow Jesus... We're not exceeding the speed limit. Make sense? We're not shortcutting Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're not saying, I've got, I got to get my child saved so they go to heaven with me. God understands all of that. He understands when, when they don't understand. You get that? They're safe in the arms of Jesus. I believe that with all my heart. Don't rush them. Because should Jesus tarry their coming and they pray a prayer just because they can answer one question... That they learn in Sunday school. When they get 15 and go to youth camp. And hear somebody passionately preaching on hell or the rapture. Then they're going to start freaking out. Or when, they, when a preacher says something like, if you don't feel God anymore, well then you never had God at all. Well that's absolutely false. But can't preachers say false things? And then kids hear them seven times that week. And all their other friends are walking the aisle and getting saved. And now they're thinking in their mind, well, I haven't felt God in like six weeks. I can't, well, I mean, I can't remember. I don't have the date when I got saved. And so now they're trusting in things that aren't the gospel because they don't truly understand the gospel. They could very well be saved. But they they are placing their faith in some kind of prayer or one question. Does that make sense? Probably repeating myself. I'm just really, really want to be clear here. I am more passionate than ever. Mercy, I'm throwing everything everywhere. I'm more passionate than ever about helping people find and follow Jesus. But I am more careful than I've ever been about going about it the right way. Here's why. I want fruit that remains. And that will only be the result of us collectively being patient and careful so as to not pick the fruit until it's ready. That means we must understand the gospel fully. We must share it carefully and clearly. And then we must trust its power to save, not our strategies. So the last point, and we, I've spent too much time on that one, so David will touch on this one in the next sermon, but we ought to live out the gospel. Our understanding of the gospel informs everything we do as Christians. Here's how many conservative Christians think about it. They think about, I get saved and then I graduate from the gospel. I got my diploma because I know the Romans wrote. 
And now I graduate from the gospel. So, pastor, here's what I want next. I want seven how-to steps. I want every message to be something that will apply to me on Monday. Don't talk about the gospel because I graduated from the Good News Club. No, you need the gospel every day of your life. You need to be reminded that you are forgiven and accepted because Jesus was condemned and died. And through that understanding, that informs your activity for Christ every day. If you aren't fueled by the gospel, if you aren't fueled by what Jesus did in your life and is doing in your life, if you aren't fueled by that, you will burn out. You will stop loving Jesus. You will stop loving his church. You will start going through the motions. You need to be reminded of God's amazing love every day of your life. That you're accountable to God. That you have a sin problem. Jesus has made you right with the Father. So keep on believing and keep on repenting. You need to live that out every single day. You agree with the Bible? Say amen.